Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy, brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Ajapong Parsons. In this episode, we're getting to the bottom of why some of our most hazardous sites aren't being properly regulated. We'll be discussing the Treasury's budget statement against the backdrop of industrial action, as well as the news that there's going to be a change of guard in the Environment Agency, as we bid farewell to Sir James Bevan. And for our deep dive this week, we'll be speaking with the scientific advisor of the BBC's Wild Isles series, and finally get to the bottom of that mysterious sixth episode. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. To help us deal with the plethora of news this week, I'm joined by ENDS Report's own news editor, Pippa Neal. And first up, it's an exclusive that's revealed the regulatory framework that governs the oversight of some of the most dangerous and hazardous sites in England isn't up to scratch. Pippa's found out through internally leaked reports and whistleblowers the true state of management across the country when it comes to these sites. Um, and Pippa, I was absolutely shocked to read about this story. Can you just tell us, it's, it's like a detective piece you've put together. You've got whistleblowers, you've got this leaked report. Can you just tell us a little bit about what was in that report? Yeah, so I'll just start with a bit of background. So the what I'm talking about here is, or what we're talking about here, is the Control of Major Accident and Hazards Regulations, also known as the COMA Regulations. Um, and these are regulations that cover some of the UK's most hazardous sites, so from chemical manufacturers to bomb stores. Um, so yeah, you know, really scary and dangerous stuff. Um, and the COMA regulations are regulated by a competent authority that's made up of the Health and Safety Executive and the Environment Agency. And the purpose of the regulations is to prevent and mitigate the effects of any major incidents um, involving dangerous substances, which can cause damage to health or the environment. Okay. Um, and I've been looking at these COMA regulations for a while and then was handed um, an internal Environment Agency report, which was published in 2021 which revealed that an internal review conducted by the regulator identified significant risks with the current delivery of these regulations. Um, specifically, the report said, and I think this line is pretty telling, that we are, it says in quotations, we are failing to undertake some of the required regulation, such as through strategic topics, including flood preparedness, where operators may not be managing hazards at the site well, or where operators are not acting consistently to resolve these issues. So so just to just to be clear, then we're talking about the Environment Agency and HSE, which are meant to be regulating these hazardous, potentially dangerous sites. Mm -hmm. And you've got a report, an internal report, which is saying they're not doing a good enough job. Exactly. Okay, so how, I mean, we're talking about a handful of sites here. How many, uh, what sites are we, what sort of numbers are we talking here? So there's 950 coma sites across the UK. Um, and now my, the report that we've been writing about in ENDS um, is just covering England. But yeah, across the UK, there's 950 coma sites. Um, That's a lot of sites. Yeah. It's a lot. Um, there's actually a map if you go on ENDS report um, within the story, which kind of shows you where where they're located. And, you know, it's all across the country. I'm not sure if it gave me much peace, but I saw on your map there's sort of upper tier and lower tier sites in terms of classification. Is that just to do with significance of the hazard or? Yeah, exactly. So upper tier are the more dangerous sites, lower tier, the least dangerous. Uh, and is one of those upper tier sites um, Buntsfield? Yeah, exactly. So um, for people that don't already know, Buntsfield was a site which nearly 20 years ago was the location of um, what has been described as the biggest fire in peacetime Europe. So an explosion at the site um, kind of led to 
you know, huge environmental impacts, PFAS pollution, which we've been talking about a lot on ENDS recently, um, you know, air pollution, environmental damage, fire destruction, like, you know, it was a huge incident. And that's um, an example of a site that's regulated under these regulations. So I think it's sort of when we've got a report by the people that are supposed to be carrying out these regulations saying that they are failing to do so is pretty worrying given just how dangerous these sites could could be if an accident was to happen. Mm, and I read in your report that there was a 2012 review of both the Environment Agency uh, and the HSC's role in that Bunsford explosion, which concluded that at an early stage, both the regulators had done little, quote, to satisfy the aims of the coma regulations in respect to the joint authority. Exactly. So so this isn't this isn't just a 2021 issue, this is a 2012 issue, a 2005 issue and mm-hmm. So I my next question is how do we get into this mess? Well, according to the various whistleblowers that I spoke to um to put this article together, a key factor is a recruitment crisis within the Environment Agency and that's something that we've been talking about for a long time uh, on ends with kind of budget cuts leading to, you know, they're not able to fill roles because they can't hire the right people um, and people are leaving because they're under pressure or they could go into the private sector and earn double the money. So it's that's a massive issue is that, you know, there's just not the people to do these jobs. And the report itself stated that or states that time pressure, process safety and technical competence and recognition, as well as poor internal assurance management, makes it extremely challenging to deliver coma regulations. So one environment agency insider told me that the agency is hemorrhaging staff, which means it can't regulate industry properly and can't compete with the private sector specialists. And it was quite interesting when I was looking into this, there's um, there's many kind of posts that the Environment Agency is trying to recruit for at the moment. But one area is a recent job advert for a regulation senior technical specialist for COMA in Hertfordshire in North London, which is the operational area where Buntsfield is. And this vacancy has been open for over six months. And I've heard from insiders that they've been out to recruit multiple times. They just can't fill this post. And, you know, if we've got these really key key positions that are meant to be regulating these sites it's just kind of a bit of a recipe for disaster if you ask me and why does no one want it well the pay is just i think this one specifically is advertised at 46000 but you know it's it's such a not only is it a really highly technical role but also and like you know the people doing these roles have a lot of responsibility responsibility for some of the most hazardous sites and that's something that came up in the internal report is that people said, you know, they just felt that if an issue was to go wrong, it's their responsibility as environment agency staff member. It wouldn't be down to the management mm-hmm. of the environment agency. Um, and it was interesting as well because the people I've spoken to pointed out that that specific job is actually advertised at a higher salary than many of the current coma technical specialists that are currently in post so that kind of shows the desperation i think perhaps but it also you know what does that say to morale if you you know you're kind of seeing a job advert for a higher salary than what you're on elsewhere in the country to do the similar if not the same job mm, the sort of job that would sort of make you bolt up right in the middle of the night if mm. you feel like something's gone wrong exactly oh So what have the regulators told you in response to all this, the official lines? Mm. So the Environment Agency, they just said, you know, all sites have an intervention plan in place to prevent major accidents. Um, And they said, we'll continue to work together with HSC to enhance our ways of working. Um, And HSC said, alongside the Environment Agency, we are committed to providing effective regulation. So 
in short, they didn't say very much. <laughs> Did that have any truck with your sources? Mm, not much, really. I think the quotes sort of, their responses sort of speak for themselves in that they didn't say very much. So... And if you want to uh, read more about Pippa's story, do go onto our website, endsreport.com, and yeah, see the map and look at it for yourself. It is really quite an unbelievable tale. Pippa, what was on Jeremy Hunt's green shopping list last week? So there was quite a few interesting things, um, but there's a few I wanted to like speak about specifically. So um, in the budget document, um, the Jeremy Hunt's promise to unblock the nutrient neutrality logjam by providing funding for locally led nutrient mitigation schemes. Right. So this is this is just very quickly. This is to do with um, the issue of excess nutrients in um, SAC, special area of conservation, protected areas which are dealing with excess nutrients in their what waterways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. And that's then preventing a, a backlog in the planning system. Exactly. Right. So this is something, again, you can go on ENDS report and read. We've been writing about this for a long time, but I think, you know, it's interesting that these mitigation schemes, um, there's potentially new funding for this. So that's definitely something to kind of we'll be watching out for over the next over the next year. Um, and Jeremy Hunt also, also announced plans for 12 new investment zones, which he said could be like 12 new canary wharfs. Um, Excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, this is quite interesting. And for anyone that was, you know, following this space back then, Liz Truss kind of introduced this policy firstly um, when she announced plans for investment zones, which ultimately led green groups to accuse her of launching an attack on nature because of their widespread kind of deregulatory approach. So how much how much is uh, Jeremy Hunt going to pay for these um, sort of canary wharf expansions? So I think the figure at the moment is £80 million um, of funding. Um, but I think it is important to point out that the kind of caveat to these zones is that they need to demonstrate support for reaching net zero or the government's, or I'm not sure if it's or or and, but also support for the government's um, nature targets, how they're going to enhance the natural environment. So it's definitely not as scary to green groups as Liz Truss's plans, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, see what this looks like. Um, and another big thing that was announced was um, more £20 billion worth of funding for carbon capture which again is something that some people have welcomed, but others sort of say, you know, that money could be better spent in investment in renewables in, in the first place. And yeah, I think a short list of projects for the first phase of this funding is going to be announced later this month. Final thing I wanted to, to talk about is subject to consultation, the budget also announced plans to class nuclear energy as environmentally sustainable in the green taxonomy. Um, so this means it will be given the same investment incentives as renewables, um, so that's quite interesting. And again, one that green groups, you know, seems to divide opinions quite what this looks like. And yeah, be interesting to see what that consultation concludes. I don't know what it looks like, but I love I love the sound of the, was it the Great British Nuclear something. Mm. That's what they, how he's branded it. The Great British something. Everything's great and everything's British. And I think we can blame Bake Off for that. Yeah. <laughs> OK. And some of the groups of people which are expected to deliver some of Jeremy Hunt's ambitions on the ground were striking across the country uh, at the same time, on the same day, in fact, as he delivered that budget statement. And that included Natural England staff. And just take a listen to this. So we're striking because we've seen uh, over a decade of real-time pay cuts, 26% for many of our colleagues. Uh, we're seeing threats to redundancy time, so compensation for people being made redundant is expected to be decreased. And also the treasuries are considering changes to headcount caps. And all of these things add up to 
just increasing difficulty for our members, uh, increasing difficulty for Natural England staff. So we have staff using food banks, having to take second jobs, feeling undervalued and people were just very passionate about the environment, passionate about conservation um, and ultimately the government's not going to meet its uh, targets on biodiversity and uh, climate if its capacity to do that is under-resourced and people are struggling just to pay the bills. And that was Reuben Douglas from Natural England. Is, is it fair to say, though, that, you know, there's been no funding coming from DEFRA recently? Um, I, I was wondering, do you know what the latest situation is on funding for the watchdog overall? Yeah, so Natural England confirmed last year that it, it is set to receive a 34% increase in funding for 22-23, um, bringing the total to $261.6 million. Um, so that obviously sounds great as a headline, but for context, the regulators granting aid from DEFRA was 265 million in 2008-2009. Right. So they're down 4 million from back when they were back in 2008. And then you've obviously you've got that issue of, I guess, the, the drop in funding and how that's impacted them over that decade. Exactly. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, what, I think one of the interesting things that I found about Ruben on strike was young lad talking to me who was the longest serving member of natural england on that picket line i think and he'd only been there two years he couldn't point to another member of his team that had been there longer it's crazy yeah i think that's just so indicative of like everything we've been talking about um and just the state of the the situation if they can't even well obviously that's but, you know, if the people on the picket line have not even been there longer than two years and they're already kind of feeling these issues, mm. it's, yeah. Not a good time to be in natural England. And ultimately, yeah, Ruben just told me that if things don't improve, the government just yeah won't be able to deliver on those biodiversity and climate targets. Mm. Uh, and to finish our weekly news, let's stick with the regulators. Um, we're going to shift our gaze to the EA, the Environment Agency. Uh, or back to the Environment Agency, rather, and the news that Sir James Bevan's replacement has been announced. Who is it and what do we know about them? So the new chief of the Environment Agency is going to be Philip Duffy, who is currently the Treasury's head of growth and productivity. Oh, growth. Mm. Love so that I think, word. <laughs> I think that's quite, um, you know, ruffled a few feathers when it was announced. But um, yeah, so... So uh, Duffy joined the civil service in 2003 and has since worked in a, like a variety of roles from deputy director of housing markets at the former Department for Communities and Local Government, head of strategy at the UK Border Agency, director of immigration and border policy. So he's had a huge variety of roles, but yeah, most recently working in the Treasury. Is there any sort of indication of the sort of things he'll have to deal with then when he enters office? Well, I think, you know, this this new position comes at quite a significant time for the Environment Agency. As we've been talking about, it's currently dealing with, you know, strikes, um, which is going to be a huge issue and it doesn't look like that's going to be stopping anytime soon. So I'm sure that's going to be something he's got to deal with when he takes up his new role. Um, also the recruitment issues that we've also been talking about. So and this is kind of leading to issues within the Environment Agency's ability to do its work. So obviously that's going to be key, key for him addressing that. Um, but also, I think, you know, the Environment Agency continues to face increasing public 
pressure and scrutiny over the sewage, so-called mm. sewage scandal. Um, and we've got the Office for Environmental Protection currently investigating off what um, the Secretary of State, the Environment Secretary and the Environment Agency into their roles of regulating, monitoring and enforcing water companies' duties to manage sewage. So, you know, that's definitely something we're, we'll be watching out for and I'm sure so will Philip Duffy. Not an easy first day then for uh, Duffy. He's joining, when's he, when's he joining the EA? So James Bevan will step down on the 31st of March and then Duffy will join, I believe, in July. Um, And kind of in that gap, John Curtin, who is currently the executive director for local operations in the agency, will kind of take an interim post. Okay, good luck, John. Thank you, Pippa. And if you'd like to hear more about any of the big green news stories this week, uh, please head over to our website, endsreport.com, including that incredible exclusive. Now, on to our deep dive section. For this week's Eco Chamber, I was lucky enough to speak with the scientific advisor on the amazing BBC Wild Isles series, hosted by that incredible national treasure that is Sir David Attenborough. It was a really frank and insightful discussion about the purposes of natural history documentaries today, uh, the state of UK wildlife at large, the sort of policy levers as well that need to be pulled to reverse that decline, and the truth behind that mysterious sixth episode, which has courted so much controversy on social media. Take a listen. Welcome to a place that is astonishing. Nature in these islands, if you know where to look, can be extraordinary, dramatic, and beautiful. It rivals anything I've seen elsewhere. It's not far, it's home. I love it. I love it. The, the music, <laughs> Sir David. Um, I am uh, very excited to be joined by Dr. Phil Wheeler, who was the ecological advisor on that series uh, for Wild Isles. So welcome to the show. Thanks very much, James. So I, I wanted to kind of ask you, with the Wild Isles as a series, um, does it as a whole portray that accurate picture of where we are uh, with the health of our wildlife in the UK? Uh, I don't think it's designed to do that. Actually, it's it's not a it's not a kind of factual series about the state of nature in Britain and Ireland. Um, it's uh, a series showcasing some spectacular wildlife and and spectacular nature that we have in Britain and Ireland. Um, I don't think it holds back from some of the issues um, in terms of you know. And I think uh, if if people have seen the first episode particularly, then um, uh, there's uh, a lot of the um, uh, the stories are, are kind of um, cave- not caveated, but but they're, they're, there's a strong kind of message about the state of nature that comes along with the stories. But what's first and foremost is is the kind of wildlife stories, you know, the, the nature uh, front and center. And I think what it does in that is really expose to people just how amazing stuff is, you know, and and things in Britain still are. I think there is some perception. Um, in the wider public that uh, Britain uh, isn't a particularly biodiverse place but that doesn't mean that there aren't amazing things here and uh, in fact I think what the series does quite successfully is uh, is illustrate the, the kind of huge variety from stuff that's that's completely spectacular and there's, there's the, the sort of um, 
I don't know, it, it, things, things that people would spend a lifetime wildlife watching and never see, like the incredible sequence of the orcas hunting seals in Shetland. Beautiful. To, to things that will be familiar to anybody who has ever dug over a, a, a bit of the garden or an allotment or, or whatever, which is a, a, a robin um, following a wild boar digging around, um, uh, digging around in the forest understory, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the robin, we hypothesize, guess, uh, uh, is following you around as you're digging around your garden, um, mimicking or, or reflecting a behavior that, that, has been around before people, and because it's a mimic of that uh, that non-human associated behaviour of uh, following animals that are digging up the the soil in forests like wild boar. I feel there's a few uh, spoilers in there that you're giving us, or teasers, maybe we should say. <laughs> yeah, let's let's say teasers. teasers. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, uh, so uh, yeah, we we have only uh, been able to watch one episode at the time we're recording, um, and and you did mention those caveats. And I think they're important because as someone who watches a lot of natural history documentaries, I sometimes am left with the feeling of just have watched lots of pretties and I don't actually feel that informed afterwards. But what I did find, at least with the first episode, is that those caveats were... I don't know. I it, 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 I felt more informed and empowered afterwards. You know, the, the, the statistics around our woodlands and... and I was blown away by the fact that our concentration of, of oak trees, mature oak trees, is one of the highest in Europe. And yet we've got this issue of, you know, um, a, a percentage of woodland which is too small. And I thought that, I thought, I don't know, I thought it was an interesting, it was interesting and slightly different to me. Um, for what yeah, I, was. I, I, um, I think there's, there's certainly a shift um, from the way that these these sort of landmark series have, the narratives that they've taken um, maybe maybe less so recently where where the, the sort of conservation message has been stronger but i think of all the landmark series that that i've seen then then um uh this this has got the, the sort of strongest conservation messages in it uh is it that because and, of you is that any, no any no on you? no and uh, i think it's it's kind of important to recognize how much of that and the expertise as well uh, kind of really starts with the producers the series producers um who uh, from from the contact I've had with them, they're all just complete wildlife nuts, and um, uh, and are, uh, you know have sort of been travelling around the world, um, uh, filming spectacular things elsewhere, but are all desperate to to do this stuff here, and um, and it's been really kind of um, I suppose rewarding uh, being able to 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 work a little bit alongside people who who are so enthusiastic and kind of you know really wanted to do this and feel like they wanted to do it for a long time as well. Do you think they need they need to go further with that conservation message? Um, well, I think they could. I um, yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on on TV scheduling and and you know what what kind of sits well where in the schedules, but I think the the reality is that. Um, uh, there's a certain type of program that sits at seven o'clock on a Sunday evening, and the, that program needs to meet certain needs for the for, you know the, the bigger picture of the BBC and what have you. And and, and I think the number of people that would t- uh, sit down and watch a five episode series, or um, at seven o'clock on a Sunday evening after they've just sort of finished their tea or whatever and are winding down, um, if that series is is five episodes about how bad the state of nature is 
uh, I don't think you're going to get the the millions of people that will be tuning into Wild Isles to see the spectacle. Mm-hmm. So I think what's clever about the series is that there's the combination of the spectacle with the kind of um, amazing, unseeable footage mm-hmm. uh, with the local footage and the strong conservation message that that's in there. And the, the sort of interplay between those things, I think, will make the conservation message hit home with a lot more people than if it was pitched as a, a series about the appalling state of nature in, in Britain. Well, that's really interesting. So, yeah, I've, I've often heard of this sort of um, climate anxiety where producers don't just want shows, not not even film, you know, stretching across radio as well. They want that. They want some sort of positive thread to be able to engage people. It's almost like a, a biodiversity anxiety or eco anxiety mm-hmm. as well. So, okay, so there are five episodes on the Wild Art series. There was a story in The Guardian which purported a a sixth, um, but then it was dropped because of fears that a conservative government or conservative ministers wouldn't be happy with it. Could you just clear this up for us once and for all? What is this all about? (laughs) Well, I can't give you the the sort of definitive BBC line on it, but certainly... um, the, so the OU, the Open University, has uh, um, a long-running relationship with the BBC whereby we co-produce um, some of these factual series. Um, uh, and you see the sort of OU poster at the end uh, of the of the series. Um, uh, and that's kind of part of a formal agreement. And and so we sort of signed up to the series. And um, uh, yeah, certainly from when I was involved in that, when when we had the kind of kickoff meeting with the production team, it was only over five episodes, and certainly the OU only ever signed up for five, a five episode series. Um, and as I understand it, um, uh, when the other partners, the, the charity partners, who are the the RSPB and um, uh, WWF, and uh, and then the the National Trust came on board, then they. Uh, enabled the production of a, a sixth episode, which which was to be online. Um, and uh, I think relatively late in the day, there was a decision made that that would also air on iPlayer. So, right. so I think somebody just got the wrong end of the stick, and and kind of it blew up and got entangled in the, the kind of general culture war that seems to be raging. And as I understand it, that sixth episode isn't the Wild Isles branding. It is a separate standalone thing entity. Yeah, it's 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 not part of the original package. Um uh yeah. And I think it's I mean it, it's slightly unfortunate I think that that's happened because um you know the the state of nature, it the state that we're currently in isn't something that's happened over the last 10 years or 13 years or, or whatever it's it you know it's it it's sort of we're talking about systemic collapses and and major declines that have happened over decades and and that no one political corner or government or political party um i think can put their hand up and say they've done enough there might be particular periods where people would look at and say well this was better than that but I don't think we can look at the state of nature in Britain and say anybody has done enough to maintain the natural environment in good condition over the last well <laughs> I, I don't know how many years you would you would want to sort of look back but certainly over my lifetime and um, uh, and probably significantly before then as well. And I mean, on that point, then I suppose my final question to you is: What needs to happen at that policy level to truly make our 
Wild Isles Wild? I think somebody needs to come in with a big vision, actually. Uh, I think it... it um, so, so Elms isn't good enough or... I mean... El- that uh, gain isn't strong enough? What do you so, think? So, well, there, there is actually a lot of vision in the Environment Act. I think there's, there's a, a lot of positivity in there. I personally, a sort of personal reaction to it was that um, I don't get the kind of the what the big vision of what Britain is going to look like um, uh, from what I know of the measures in the Environment Act. Um, and, um, and I think partly that's uh, scepticism about what happens then from the vision uh, and the kind of big picture to the nitty gritty. Um, and I think what we're seeing now, you know, um, conservation really uh, like politics, like they say, is, is all local, isn't it? You know, and it really depends on what happens on the ground in individual cases and how all of that pans out. And I think one of the big or the, the multiple challenges that there are is that that the ideas that there are, the plans and the the, the um, uh, schemes that there are in uh, in in Elms and um, with net gain and um, uh, and a, a range of other measures, all depend on quite detailed technical assessments on the ground. Um, uh, the SFI, for example, dep- depends on on um, you know, at least some support for for farmers and and land managers on the ground. A lot of it's quite technical. Biodiversity net gain, the process around uh, assessing net gain or, or identifying net gain is very technical, requires a lot of expertise. They just are not the people to do that. You know, on, on the one hand, there aren't the people in the, uh, the government agencies, which have been completely hollowed out over the, the period of austerity. Many have been on strike this week, DEFRA and naturally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so big problems there. Um uh you know, really good people committed, wanting to do the job, being given an enormous job to do, uh, and and just not having the resource there. Um and I think it that sort of reflects not, you know, that that's not a problem just for the government end of nature conservation and environmental management. It then sort of spins out to um to farmers, to businesses working in the environment sector who just can't rely on the um, uh, the regulatory framework that they need to work in or support within uh, or with, within those agencies f- uh, to 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 do the right thing effectively. Uh, and I think that's a big problem, um, and there's an, an unfortunate history of major reform. Uh, government reform that has been poorly resourced, and I think we're seeing a kind of an environmental version of that 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 could end um, n- not very well. I think you know uh, the net gain, for example, um, is is going to require a huge amount of professional ecologists who just are not there. I, I, the capacity isn't there in in the system, um, and people there's not enough people in the pipeline, I think, to to deliver what's going to be required in just a few months in terms of... Um, because because no, it's mandatory come November for, yeah, for Dolores yeah, England? Yeah, uh, as far as I understand, for, for any any development, really, other than a sort of householder uh, development and very small-scale stuff, is, is going to require um, a net gain assessment and, uh, and works. And somehow I've got to show you that there's a 10% uplift in the nature value of my site. That's right. So you need an assessment of your site, um, of, of the, you know, the 
um, biodiversity metric for your site. Uh, and you need to then be able to find a way of um, uh, of uh, finding your your ten percent on top of that, you know, which which might be uh, on site, it might be adjacent or, or elsewhere. But but all of these things require people who kind of know, um, uh, and particularly if they're going to work, you know, I suppose the system could work with without the knowledge that it needs. Um, uh, but it th- you wouldn't end up with a good result. And I think the the, the problem, um, the risk is that there just aren't the people and the resources to deliver these schemes and make them work. What, what's so interesting is, you know, I'm seeing Dr. Tereau's coffee online, retweeting the Wild Isles and saying how, showcasing how brilliant our nature is. And yet we're talking about some really difficult, hard to address problems, the reality on the ground. Is it delusion or is it wishful thinking? Where do, where do we go from here? I think that's very difficult because the the, the con, there's a lot of constraints. You know, the, there's not a lot of money in the system, I suppose, and that that's the bottom line, really. Um, but also that 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 question of um, uh, of personnel, really, that there's a um, there's going to be delay uh, as these systems get up and running in people to actually uh, support their delivery from a kind of government side from the the sort of public sector but also from the private sector um uh so could you call it wishful thinking i don't know um uh, over optimism might might be more generous um uh i i i think it's it's um just difficult to see how it will how it will work out positively given the the current circumstances i, w- I would love to be proved wrong on that um because we're in a very desperate situation really um uh, and we don't really have a decade to get it wrong again. You know, I, I got my first academic job 20 years ago um, and there was no controversy there that the state of nature in Britain was poor. And 20 years down the line, we're still talking about how we can stop it getting worse, not how we can make it better faster. It's it's all about how we can stop it making uh, getting um getting worse um uh, and and then start to see an improvement but i think there's 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 some positive uh things within within these initiatives that are are actually sort of starting to uh starting to look like positive real change on the ground you know the shift towards um opportunities for landscape scale recovery landscape scale initiatives and the 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 um uh Kind of con- connection in terms of the physical sense, but also in terms of the organisation and management of some protected area networks, I think is is a big step forward, and that's something that has come, I suppose, from from research over the last thirty or more years about the importance of of connectivity, um, and that's now finally there in you know there's mechanisms within um, these new initiatives that, that will see that delivered and they are starting to be delivered. Um, and so I think that's positive. It's, it's stuff that's in the right direction to travel, but I, you know, we do need to face up to the fact that these are small, but positive, um, uh, bits of the landscape, the vast majority of the landscape is still in poor state and a lot of it is still declining. So the overall picture is still very negative. So more people need to be informed from the Wild R series and we need to move this conversation much quicker, further forwards. Thank you so much. Um, really, really grateful you're on the show. And yeah, I'd love to get you back on in a year's time. Hopefully we can be talking about 
something something bigger, something better. Well, that would be great. And then what would be nice would be to to see a real impact from this series of of sort of uh, movement uh, of people. I think the charities are going to do a lot to to support wider society to to actively get involved at the OU we we have educational resources for people to join i've got hundreds of students coming through our environmental science degree um and uh, uh and and so there's an enormous interest and a kind of groundswell of public support and public enthusiasm for nature in this country and i think it it really needs to be seen and to translate into the kind of higher um, levels of power really and and so that the the government start to really sort this out you know take the initiative uh, show some real leadership in its response to the sixth episode allegations uh, just worth saying that the BBC did issue a statement describing the Guardian's story as totally inaccurate quote and that there quote is no sixth episode uh, Wild Isles is and always was a five-part series and does not shy away from environmental content we have acquired a separate film for iPlayer from the RSPB, WWF and the National Trust and Silverback Films about people working to preserve and restore the biodiversity of the British Isles. And the Beeb also confirmed with me that the separate film would not be Wild Isles branded. So I hope that clears everything up. You can watch BBC Wild Isles 7pm on Sunday or on iPlayer where you will be able to watch that infamous extra Not Sixth, Not Wild Isles episode in the future. Today we've learnt that the coma regulations governing nearly 1,000 hazardous sites in England seem to be in a state of paralysis. The Jeremy Hunt's budget statement isn't cutting the mustard, or turnips, for swathes of staff in natural England. And the new head of the Environment Agency will need all his civil service Mandarin powers to deal with his forthcoming in-tray of headaches. And that's it. We've come to the end of this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. My thanks to Pippa Neal for deftly taking me through the complexity of news stories this week. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>